Live export is a difficult subject. Some listeners may find this challenging. I'm Colin Klupik. This is 47 Degrees. I interview Lynn at her dining table, which I later discover is made of an old cart, a glass top, and four legs which she turned herself on a lathe. Good with all kinds of knives, I see. Looking around, there's an incredible collection of art. She tells me she likes to collect a piece of art from all the places she visits, and it soon becomes obvious that she's visited a lot of places, mostly Middle Eastern and African, it seems. I note one poster, which was actually a campaign run by the World Society for the Protection of Animals, now known as World Animal Protection. The slogan reads, Australia, the worst voyage from the best place. If you type that slogan into Google and hit images, it's the first one you see. It's worth a look. A live export ship slowly makes its way up a beautiful river gorge, with some sheep and cattle looking on from a grassy bank. It looks very peaceful, but you quickly get the message. The photos are interesting too. No shortage of military encounters. I particularly like the one where Lynn has persuaded two Israeli soldiers to pose for a photo prior to a ship inspection, even though technically that's not done. I couldn't help noticing that one of them really appeared to like the automatic weapon he was holding. Of course, I have no way of verifying that. It's just the vibe I got from the picture. As she described her collections, I got a sense that these weren't just ordinary souvenirs. This was years of adventure and hard work. What was life like at sea? And a warning, some listeners may find stories in this episode disturbing. You mentioned before that uh, you walked onto a, a deck when you were loading some some stuff onto a ship where you are and you mentioned that you are five foot nine but you couldn't stand in this deck but that's where the animals are let's talk about life at sea let's talk about what it's like for an animal to live or to travel or not live but to travel for an extended period of time first of all in a place which has such low headroom what's that like I mean if you're I, I would imagine that if you're looking over the animals or surveying them or doing a round or something you'd be constantly bending over um, yeah, and I'll just start with one point is they are actually living on these, these vessels. It's, it's seen as transport, but when some of the voyages, I've done a voyage that they were on for six weeks. So that's actually, that's, you know, that's not just transit. That's, no, that's you are living yeah. in that. That's like a floating feedlot. So when they say, oh, it's just this temporary thing and they're just going from A to B, well, that A to B can be very long. So they are living for a period of their life in, in these conditions. Um, so the, the ships vary and we have uh, minimum standards set by the Australian Maritime Safety Authority about heights of decks um, for different species and heights of rails and rail distances and all that very technical design and structural material um, basis. And then the Department of Agriculture manages the so-called animal welfare um, and husbandry uh, standards. So a deck that's... Um, you know, five foot nine or, or just a bit less, um, would either have small cattle in it or just one level of sheep. So um, so there are regulations as to the type of headspace that these animals are supposed to have. I can't remember off the top of my head what they are, um, but they will be, they'll vary, and I would suspect, especially on double-tiered sheep chips, that we actually breach that quite, quite often. Yeah, I was just, going, I was, just as you were explaining it, it all sounds nice to say, well, there's a standard for this and there's a standard for that, but what if the standard is too low? 
Well, as, as, as in not just a low standard, but as in the height, as in the headroom. What yeah. if that's just too low? And that's it. These, these are minimal standards that these um, these exporters and the ships and the uh, managers have to have to meet. It's it's a bit like um, it's 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 like saying you know you need to wear a seatbelt in your car, but you could actually hook up a, a proper racing harness. You know, no one's mm. stopping you from improving that that safety sure. standard to be to be better. And um, and interestingly, when some of these companies have come under fire for for poor welfare standards, they've tried to blame it back on Department of Agriculture and or the um, uh, Maritime Safety Authority. And I'm very quick to point out they're the minimum standards you have to you meet. You you can develop your ship. You could fit it with air conditioning if you thought you needed to. You know, and a pool deck. <laughs> and uh, absolutely, you could do whatever you want. They're not they're not saying this is it. This is you hit this standard or nothing. They're just saying this is the lowest. You know, by all means, um, provide more and better. So people tend not to, of course, because it's not cost, um, you know, they're going to go for the lowest cost that they can. Mm. So, so it's an irritating argument that they say these standards aren't, aren't good enough because it's up to them. What's it like for you then to go down onto one of those decks and presumably look over hundreds of, hundreds of heads and try to ascertain what's going on? Oh, it's tens of thousands of heads. And um, so... <laughs> Depending on the ship again, there was one ship, um, I think it's the Almasila, and they insisted I wore a um, hard hat and without the hard hat I could walk around the deck and not smash my head on every um, overhead beam. With oh, the hard okay. hat, it, okay. it added two <laughs> inches and I was just con- constantly, you know, smack, 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 smack. And so... Um, so I, I negotiated that I didn't have to wear a hard hat and I would take liability for my own, um, mm. you know, head-smashing activities. And um, because otherwise I was just stooping that little bit the whole time. So, um, you know, just to, to go from A to B down a passageway. So that was physically draining and painful and my back was always, you know, really sore after a voyage on that particular ship. Most ships are a lot taller. And, um, and that was only some decks of that ship. But when you're looking at a double-tiered sheep deck – for example, you're, um, you, you have to, you have no choice whatsoever but to stoop down and almost sort of bend at the hip 90 degrees. When, to, sorry, when you say double-tiered, what do you mean by that? You've got two layers of sheep on one deck. Oh, okay. So from floor to ceiling, you've got two layers of sheep. Yep. What, on, on a grill of sorts? Um, no, it's just like two. It's like you've got a big shelf above the other sheep. So, um, so yeah, and it's got, you know, feed troughs and um, water troughs and railings and all that kind of stuff, but it's just two layers. And, um, and they have much um, reduced headspace in general than on a single-tiered mm-hmm. or a single-deck or, or a single-tiered deck. Um, so when you're walking along the, the passageways on those ships – uh, with you, you only have um, double tiered with with sheep. I've never seen them with um, cattle. And um, as you you walk along, you can actually, if you're standing upright, you can only see the sheep that are actually at the trough eating and maybe one meter into the pen. And the upper tier, you're well at my height. My face is at their feed trough height. So I just look straight into a feed trough, the side of a feed trough, and I can see, if I look up, I can see their little faces um, looking at me from across the top of the, the trough, and 
I can sometimes, depending on the design, I can see maybe their knees underneath the the trough and whatever I can make out throughout that that mess. So it's a bit like looking in through the side of a, a truck that's yeah. fully loaded. Yeah. So, so you- what's so what's it like? Or firstly, how deep does it go from where you're standing? So how far in would it go? Uh, some of them would go in maybe seven metres. So how do you see anything that's happening down there? Well, you have to stoop. You have to stoop down to see the, the lower ones and you have to climb up to see the upper, de- upper tiers. So what if, a, what if there's a sheep that's seven metres in that's fallen down? Or, you don't or see it. You don't see it. So you've actually got to climb in there and hunt around for these things. So what happens is um, the crew members are allocated a certain area of the pens to look after and that's theirs for the entire voyage and their job is to go into the pens and systematically or methodically go from one end of a pen to the other and go through all their areas and they go through with a stick with a plastic bag on the end of it so that the the animals will you know move away from them it's really crowded so it's Mm -hmm. not that easy for the animals to do that and they find anything that's um lying down and can't get up and they get everything up anyway if they can if if it can get up if it can't get up they drag it to the the edge of the um pen so that we can get it out through an upper gate um they'll find the dead animals i'll do the same with that and i'll just drop them down onto the next deck um or onto the deck floor and um and anything sick and injured they'll either flag or try and catch and so they're they're basically um, crawling through these areas. They're not necessarily on hands and knees um, unless they're very tall, but they're they're very much um, sort of squat walking, and um, and that's that's hard enough on you yourself at the best of times without being under a deck of um, or being under another low roof and having sheep running all over the place. And sheep have this horrible habit of just jumping up mm. and um, and they can smash you in the face and knock you over and, you know, knock you from behind and smash your head into a, a beam above your head um, and cause lots of injuries to the crew. So they often get, you know, sort of battered and bruised and, and, and so do the sheep. And let's not forget, you're on the ocean, which is seldom flat. <laughs> yeah, and if, it, if it's heaving around, then, you know, you're sort of moving with that and um, and it's, it's hot or it's cold, depending on where you are. So it's, yeah, it's, it's really hard work. Coming up, I talk to Lynn about what it's like to travel through extremes of heat and cold and the changing ocean conditions that accompany those extremes. The reality of low headroom on the animal decks and the need for the crew to squat walk around to tend the animals prompted me to look up some standards. I can't verify the actual deck heights of the ships themselves, but I did manage to find a document on the Australian Department of Agriculture and Water Resources website that shed some light on the conditions. It's the Australian Standard for the Export of Livestock, version 2.3, 2011. The point of mentioning this is not to provide an exhaustive critique one way or the other. That's a whole other story. The point here is to alert listeners to the fact that documents like these are available for anyone to read so that they can draw their own conclusions. Take page 90, for example. There's a table which outlines the minimum pen area per head for sheep and goats exported by sea. The area varies by weight of the animal. So I chose a weight on the table that was similar to my weight of 80 kilos and marked that out on the floor and then sat in that space for a while. The actual number is 0.502, which is about half a square metre. Then I imagined what it would be like to be in that space for weeks on end, sleeping, eating, toileting, jostling for position to get to the feed trough, whilst the floor beneath me swayed from side to side and the temperature varied from very cold to extreme heat. 
Again, this is not an exhaustive critique, but it may prompt you to think about the welfare cost of what's reported as a $1.78 billion industry for the 2016 financial year, according to the department's website. Now, you mentioned hot or cold depending on where you are. I would assume that you would travel through those extremes regularly and that depending on whether it was extremely cold or extremely hot, that would that would be awful or that it that it's bad. What 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 does that look like? Well the nature of long haul voyages means that we are we are always going from the southern hemisphere to the northern hemisphere. So unless you're choosing those those couple of months a year where you've got the autumn and spring that are sort of similar in, in each area, mm. um, you will cross the equator, which is often you know, more tropical um, than where you've come from or where you're going to. But, yeah, those those temperature discrepancies, they, they always sort of smash you around a little bit because you might get on in Portland um, in Victoria and it's freezing cold and you've got layers and layers of jackets on and you've got sheep maybe being hit by waves or spray and they're cold and they're wet. And then you go into the Middle East and, you know, you go in there in the middle of summer. So you've gone from, say, you know, minus two in Portland and um, and then you end up in the Middle East, and it's forty five, fifty degrees. When you say that there there are waves that come up and and the sheep get wet, I mean that must be that must be huge. These waves, you must be going through some pretty rough seas. Well, especially sailing from Portland, um, you you have to cross the Great Australian Bight, and that's one of the most notoriously rough. Um, pieces of water known to man. I mean, you think of all the the lone yachtsmen that that the Australian Navy have had to rescue Mm. from upturned yachts. Where have they been? Usually around there somewhere. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) exactly. So, um, you know, I've had ships where, you know, I've I've got a a cabin with a porthole that's that's way above the the waterline by, you know, maybe seven metres and and the ship will dip over so far um, that that porthole I can see into the sea. So, so it's well, like looking into a fish tank. Yeah, so the ship's obviously not level. It's not flat at this point. So I can't imagine that sheep are good at hanging on. They'd probably just all be moving around. They'd sort of be doing this giant shuffle constantly to, to stay upright. Depending on how long they've been on the ship and how fatigued they are, they'll either be all standing up and shuffling and tripping over each other and just moving like a... A, a mosh pit cra- um, crowd yeah. or they'll lie down and they'll just be on the ground just sort of rolling in that same kind of environment so there'll be a few shippies out there that say you know oh you can't have a ship that rolls over that far that you know the the porthole is obscured by by actual seawater um, not just waves coming up and hitting it but what happens with some of these ships especially the um the smaller ships the smaller ships have the roughest voyage mm. um you know the bigger ones which are the ones that i spent most of my time on usually have a smaller voyage a, a smaller um movement by the sea but um usually 35 degrees if you go lean over one side on a ship more than 35 degrees with the ship that's usually unrecoverable that ship will capsize and it'll just fall over and that's that's the way it goes so when my porthole's been like that then that's a capsizing event but what ironically happens in these um, situations is when you're in water that rough, the sea often then just smacks you from the side that you're about to capsize on and throws you down the other side. And then pushes you back over. And then over. pushes you back and it just plays with you like a cat with a mouse and you get thrown all over the place. And um, and it would be nothing to um, 
you know, as a human, you're not covered in fur like a, a, a cow or a sheep or whatever. Um, and it'd be nothing to just see, especially your hip bones, you know, just covered in bruises from bouncing off um, railings and uh, feed trough edges just as you're walking down a passageway because of the ship movement. So moving, or falling out of bed. <laughs> so moving towards the other end of the spectrum, when it gets hot, uh, what are we talking? How, how hot? Um, I think the hottest that I've been confident that we're in is probably about 51 degrees in Q8. 51 Celsius. Yeah. Well, that would be 51 in, um, yeah, 51 Celsius in Q8 with uh, humidity quite low in Q8. And I think I've been in Dubai at about 55 degrees. 55 degrees. Are we talking on the top deck as in you're standing on the top? Well, that's your ambient temperature. And what's really important to note is with these ships, um, they're only getting ambient air poured in. So I said, you know, people, if they want to, they could put air conditioning in. Well, we've got a ventilation system, but it's just ambient air being sent back in. So it's the temperature of outside. So it'll be at that temperature. But you've got to factor in the fact that each animal is generating its own heat and it's been calculated how many... um, you know, British thermal units or whatever, you know, <laughs> a sheep will, will contribute. And, it, and that will change depending on whether it's got a, a gut full of feed and it's ruminating and actually, you mm-hmm. know, making more heat like you and I do when we have a meal. And, um, and one thing that is often overlooked and is only recently starting to be studied properly from the animal perspective, it's been studied by engineers for years and years, is the sea temperature because we need to know what temperature the sea is so the engineers can do different things with the engine and the fuel that they use because the fuel often has to be heated to, mm-hmm. um, to get it um, thin enough to go through the engines. So there's hot air coming in. The hull is um, absorbing heat from the sea. The sheep are generating heat, and that's when the faecal pad on the ground or the sewerage that the animals are living in, um, the, the faeces and urine, they start to um, kind of liquefy with the humidity and um, because the animals are drinking more too and so yeah. they're, they're, they're adding more moisture to it and it starts to off-gas um, ammonia and the animals are often breathing more heavily so there's more CO2 in the air. And, of course, every time these animals are experiencing these conditions, the seafarers are con- experiencing these conditions. And, again, these are critical times the animals need to be observed more than normal or more than in milder conditions. So the crew are actually exposed to more heat stress risk as well as the animals. So do, do crew and animals alike just start passing out? Uh, yeah, I've had crew that I've had to hook up to, um, to IV drips that have um, passed out through dehydration and heat stress. I've come very close to passing out through heat stress and I've, I've pulled up before it's happened. So is that just because of dehydration or what about uh, inhalation of those gases that you were talking it's about? probably a combo of the whole lot. I was asked once to help with a study about ammonia um, build-up on some ships and somebody doing a PhD set me up with an ammonia meter and um, sent, you know just said, oh, this is how you use it, you know, go down on the deck and take some readings and fill out this spreadsheet for me throughout your voyage. Yeah, yeah no worries. So I go down there and, um, and I thought it was just the fact that I'm useless with um, technological stuff and I couldn't get this thing to work. And every time I turned it on, it just came up with a big E and, um, and screamed at me. And I'm just like, oh, what an annoying piece of, you know, I've got... Perfect. So it had already passed its limit of reading. Well, I, yeah, and, and of course, you know, um, I wasn't reading the instructions because I'd been told how to use it. So I was like, you know, and eventually I got, I thought, yeah, I'm bored enough. I'll read the, the proper instructions, you know, 
I did that male thing, you know, even though I'm not male. I'm like, okay, I concede defeat. I'll read Steady. the instructions. Fine. Steady on. <laughs> and, um, well, male-dominated industry. You've got to, <laughs> okay, you've okay, got to okay. adopt the thinking. Yep, sure. Um, you know, I, I, let's go with that. Okay. And, um, and I read the instructions and, um, and I'd given up taking this thing downstairs with me because it was just another thing I had to carry. But it turned out that when it, <laughs> when it does the big E and, and screams at you, it just means evacuate toxic levels. Oh, no. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, right. Right. Excellent. And that was doing that very early in the voyage before the, the levels were getting high. So, um, and there are global standards for animal and human um, housing and work health and safety that ammonia shouldn't go above uh, 25 parts per million. And I suspect we breach that nearly every time we do a voyage, especially in the lower decks, which are often the, um, the warmer ones. And especially on certain sides of the ship, depending on where you're going. So if you're going to the Middle East, usually the port side cops the afternoon sun. Mm. So the port side of the ship will be warmer than the starboard side from the external, like the above water um, hull. Presumably this is when you see the health of the animals start to change quickly and those who are suffering or those who are vulnerable uh, change even, even more quickly. How does your role as a vet start to morph and change when you see radical differences in care needs amongst animals? An experienced vet on these ships or stockmen um, will, and, and captains, of course, will know the critical areas of the oceans that we travel that are prone to um, change really quickly and, and basically take everything from business as usual but not great, to, um, to wow, all hands on deck. You know, things are going, going poorly right now. Um, and so you'll just become more vigilant during those times. And so, you know, you might walk around at 10 o'clock in the morning, everything's looking fine. One o'clock in the afternoon, you've got sheep hanging out of their pens, literally with their tongues out. And they're not even drooling because they're so dehydrated. They've just got a white foam on their tongues. Their tongues are starting to become cyanotic and blue. And th- there's nothing you can do. It's, it's well... Th- there's very little you can do. It's not like you can just open the gate and give them more space to, mm. to get away from the gas. So what we do with an open-sided ship is um, is we insist that the captain um, – well, we don't have to insist. Usually the captains are very obliging. Um, we get the captain to swing the ship, so we zigzag. And so what that does is we, we catch breezes from different areas and we can flush out um, gases from certain sections. Um, the animals in the middle of those pens often suffer – or middle of those decks often suffer worse or more than on the outside because it's harder to flush right through the house, the sheep house. And, um, and we'll pull out any animals that are collapsing. And um, if an animal's unconscious from heat stress, there's a very good, good chance that it's um, either not going to recover on its own or it will succumb to kidney failure in the next five, seven, ten days and die anyway. So once an animal's unconscious from heat stress, I'll kill it. And um, usually it's just with a knife and I'll just cut and, um, yeah, throw it overboard. Most people would think of that situation as a euthanasia situation. I'm going to put the animal down. I will euthanize the animal, but you're just using a knife. Is that the, is that the most practical and acceptable and professional way to go about it at that particular point in time? What, what are your alternatives? We have guns on the ship, but we don't carry them around with us all the time because you might have several people dependent. Well, we have a gun. You may have several people dependent on knowing where that gun is at one point, and it's very difficult to find a person on these ships. They're like a multi-storey car park, and you just wander along on your own sort of agenda. So everybody 
you know, we gather up at meeting times and coffee times and meal meal times and we sort of debrief with each other and give an idea of what we're planning on the next couple of hours. But if you hit a situation where, um, you know, you, you know, you can't just sort of carry the gun on your hip like, you know, you're in, you're in a Western and, 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 and shoot, shoot as, as, as you need because somebody else may be downstairs looking for that gun and they may spend two hours looking for you to find that gun for an animal that's got a broken leg and needs to be killed immediately, like especially if it's a cattle mm. instead of a sheep. A sheep is a lot easier um, logistically to actually catch, flip over by yourself and cut their throat. Have you ever tried to kill anything humanely? What does that idea mean to you? It's a concept that kept coming up in conversation, and not only with Lynn. It seems to be something that various sides of the issue are concerned about. I got three other opinions on this, from the Australasian Meat Industry Employees Union, an expert on ethics at Sydney University, and the RSPCA. Unsurprisingly, they said similar things, and we'll come back to that in the next episode. But for now, we'll get back to an overdose of anaesthetic, which is apparently known as the green dream. It's not what we taught at vet school. We're taught to, <laughs> to kill humanely. I can imagine. Um, and we're, we're taught to kill with, um, with an overdose of anaesthetic, um, which is, you know, the green dream that people hear about, and or with um, shooting at the precise point. So, um, so yeah, it, it's, it's not in our, our vet manuals as such, but it is the most practical thing to do because you're actually addressing these animals. When you've got something like 120,000 sheep, to be looking after you can't just be walking around and go oh there's a sick one i'll just run down six yeah, flights of yeah. stairs grab a gun come up shoot him run back down six flights of stairs and leave that gun where somebody else may need it in a few minutes and then go back up and continue your rounds so i carried a um a leatherman everywhere i went um so that's a very practical tool <laughs> it is amazing I, I think i should be sponsored by them yes. um so, you know, I, I've got nothing but good things to say about Leatherman. And, um, and once you're experienced with, um, with, with killing animals with a um, – or euthanizing, the, the fact of the matter is you, you're killing them. You are putting them out of their misery, but, um, but it is killing euthanasia. It's, it's the same thing. 120,000 sheep on the boat. Uh, what do you do with the carcass? So you've just you've – just, you th- well, use the word euthanized or, or killed. You've just killed the sheep. What do you do with it? Um, you'll try and keep track of the numbers if you can. If, if it's just a flat-out panic, or not panic, if it's, if it's just a flat-out um, disaster where you're just, you know, killing and throwing, killing and throwing, you just do that. So you lose track of which numbers have died in which area because mm-hmm. you, you do try to keep a, a log of, um, you know, in your daily report of how many animals have died on such a deck in such an area, et cetera, um, for, uh, you know, reconciliation mm-hmm. for numbers, um, which is why our numbers are often a bit skewed. But usually... Um, if it's just one animal, like I'm walking around and it's not a disaster time, it's not a really high heat stress time and I find an animal that's poorly, I'll um, euthanise it and I'll just leave it on the side of the um, alleyway so that the, the crew member for that area can actually find that dead animal and he can throw it and he can add it to his tally because he'll be keeping a tally for his, his section, whereas I don't keep a tally for all the sections. And um, I get the tallies added up for me on the daily report and I sort of I, I keep a rough tally for myself but I don't get a chance to see everything all the time because you might be you might be on a ship that's 11 stories high so when you say throw I'm I'm thinking throw overboard yes 
so you don't you don't have a like a waste facility for the animals. There's no there'd be no room for that. Some ships have this horrible machine called a um, they call it a hogger machine or a grinder or a commutator, and the um, grinder. <laughs> And um, so it means that somebody somewhere has, you know, come up with the idea of designing such a thing and um, and developing it and fitting it into a ship that then, um, you know, has water pumped into it. You, you throw the, the body into it and it just grinds it up into... Dog food? ...mush. And, no. um, and it ends up in a tank with a whole lot of water and it can be ejected out through the bottom of the ship. Oh, great. So, um, so they don't wait until they get into port and have someone... Suck it out with a truck; it just goes straight out into the straight, ocean. Straight, straight out into the ocean. But they're they're notoriously um, tricky to maintain because they will. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah, <laughs> and and they're just really gross because, um, especially if you've got animals that are decomposing by the time you've you've either found them in a crowded uh-huh. pen or you know they're decomposing quickly because of hot weather. Um, it's usually easier to throw them straight to the ocean because. Literally, as you grab them, they they fall apart, and um and they'll just be like a melted mess of you know this this sack of wool that's falling apart with goop inside it. So this is uh, this comes back to uh, the experience that you had where it was extremely hot and animals are effectively just dying all around you, and then you look at this one particular animal and you go, oh, that's an unusual thing to be happening to its flesh and skin and so forth, and you and you shoved a thermometer into it. Can you talk me through that? Yeah, so it wasn't so much that it was unusual for me to see that on the ship. It was just the fact that um, I was seeing so much of it on this particular afternoon that, you know, the scientist in me just sort of went, I, I need to take some evidence back to the government to let them know what these animals are experiencing. And um, and they were, they were just dropping dead around me and, you know, anything that was just dropping unconscious, I was cutting and I cut one animal and, you and, know, and sorry, and Sorry to interrupt, but they really were just dropping, as in dropping. Thudding, as in thudding down. Mm. Okay. Mm. Yep. So, um, and then there are other little mates who climb on top of them and to try oh, and get no. um, more air and reach higher and stuff like that. So, so it's pretty awful. And um, and you get as many people as you can to to help you just go in there and get get all the collapsed ones out. But as I say, if they've already collapsed, there's a good chance they're going to die of kidney failure slowly and more painfully than if you cut their throat while they're unconscious from heat stress. So, um, so every time I've had one of those incidents, I've been lucky to be <laughs> lucky um, to be on a open sided ship, which means we can drag the bodies immediately before they decompose too much Um, and they decompose really quickly Mm. in this hot weather. Um, We can basically almost immediately kill, drag, throw. So it can be done within 30 seconds. And, um, And... you just throw them overboard before they become the horrible mess that they, you, you would have seen in um, some footage recently on 60 Minutes. So, um, so, so we rarely had that on a mass scale because we, we got rid of them quickly mm. because of the design of the ship. They're going, the designs seem to be changing to more closed-sided designs, which, um, which has its own dangers because you can't utilise the zigzagging with those those ships and um, and then you can't easily dispose of bodies because you've only got so mm. many exits. Um, whereas this open sided ship, the whole side of the ship is is pretty easy yeah. to throw. But in this case, you decided to take a measurement. Yeah. So um, well, I, I did it because you know I was used to to killing heat stressed animals and I was used to um, to post morteming animals and 
seeing that they'd, you know, the, the muscles had changed colour and, um, you know, fat was changing and, and those kind of parameters that we use for diagnostic um, visual aids. And this particular one, when I cut its throat, um, the blood squirted across my wrist, which is not uncommon, but it scalded me and I'm just like... It scalded you? Yeah. I'm like, that's that's stupid hot. Like, what the hell? You know, I'm like, that is ridiculously hot. If, if that's so hot that that has... has um, you know, it didn't leave a mark, but it it, it hurt. But it felt hot. It, it felt hot like enough hot for, water. for me to want to, you know, withdraw from it and shake my hand and wipe it off, you know, as you do, yeah, with hot water. Um, and I just thought, that's insane hot. I want to know how hot that is because if I'm experiencing that as that blood's externalised onto my skin, what are they feeling from the inside? Mm. You know, because that's that was painful outside. What if that's coursing through every blood vessel in your body? So, um, so we have deck thermometers that um, read the temperature of our, our decks. So I went and um, grabbed the nearest one and I smashed it out of its casing. And I just um, the next sheep that I cut, that I, I killed, I um, I made an incision in the sheep and I just put the, the thermometer into it and it came up as forty seven degrees. So the average temperature of a healthy sheep in a normal condition is about 38.5 degrees. And, um, and doctors, you know, anyone with kids especially knows that a kid with a fever or anyone with a fever over 41 degrees is risking brain damage. Mm. And it's the same with animals. And, um, but, you know, how do we know that an animal's got a mild brain lesion or brain problem you know because we, we don't talk to them as clearly you know it's not like they're slurring a word or whatever but um it's pretty clear that at 41 degrees um there's going to be brain damage of some sort and um and very likely with this sheep you know over 41 degrees there's going to be kidney failure so yeah and then at 47 degrees at 47 degrees you're not recovering You'll probably never regain consciousness, you know, even if you got put into an ice bath and cooled down and given IV fluids and all that kind of stuff. You, you just wouldn't recover. So, yeah, it's the best thing you could do for them. So life on board the ship for you, how do you rate that? How do you begin to describe life on the ship, so you've done a day's work, you've seen all these these things, and then you just retire to your cabin and go, oh well, that was my day. What does that What does that look like? Depending on the day, like if you are still in a high risk area, you may um, go upstairs, have your dinner, maybe have a shower, um, but continue to nip down onto the decks every couple of hours just to check how things are doing, or go up onto the bridge so that you can, depending on the design of the ship, so that you can actually watch sheep. And you know, monitor their their behaviour. You know, the ones that you can see um, to give you an indication. Um, but yeah, if it's a, a standard sort of day on the on the seas, you'll finish up about six o'clock and then have a shower, have dinner, um, and then sit around and watch DVDs or <laughs> videos or whatever. And um, you, you make know. it sound so normal. Uh, well, it is. It's just that's our life. and That um, stereotypical thing, you know, the, the, the husband or the wife comes home and, how was your day, dear? Oh, you know. Yeah, well, you just kind of, you know, if you don't want to hang out with anyone, you go and spend time in your cabin. Ships usually have a um, an unwritten rule that um, if the door's open, you, you're looking to um, to chat and, you know. Um, you can be interrupted. Talk to people. If your door's shut. Do not disturb. Don't knock, yeah, unless it's emergency because I'm always on call on the ship. Um, 
so yeah, but otherwise you go down to the um, the mess and you you know people play cards or watch movies or Arabic MTV, which you know we watch a lot of, and Bollywood nice. movies. Oh, they're terrible. Um, but um, yeah, and then you go to bed and you get up in the morning, you do it all over again. What's the food like? Um, yeah, it's um, depending on which company you're working for and which nationality you're working for. They they often cater for the nationalities, and some companies are a lot tighter with their food rations than others. So um, there's a lot of food I've eaten that I still can't tell you what it is, um, <laughs> even after I've consumed it. I, I, animal, mineral, vegetable. Um, for a while, I thought they had candid cameras um, up in you know some of the the mess rooms because. The food, um, I thought, they're just playing with me now. They're seeing what's, what, at what stage is she not going to, you know. You've become a science experiment. Yeah, attempt this. Yeah, there was some sociology PhD going on, I'm sure. And, um, you know, avocado milkshakes, mm. really? Mm. You know, that's normal in some countries apparently, but not where I'm from. Um, we got another dessert one night and it looked like it had fish eyes in it. I, 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 <laughs> it was pink with fish eyes. And I, I, I don't think they were fish eyes, but... They certainly weren't passion fruit pips, and I've got no idea what oh, it was. No. It was really odd, and that reminds me of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, oh. where she gets her soup and it's got eyeballs in it. Oh right, <laughs> oh, no. yeah. So but- does the food vary depending on your rank? So you, you're an officer on these ships, but you've also got, um, you call them ordinary seamen, OSs, yeah. yeah. So yeah. how, how does that vary? Do you sometimes look at what they get and then look at what you get and think, oh, mine's not so bad now? Yeah, we often get we often have two different um, – depending on the size of the ship, we have two messes. So we've got a mess for the um, the junior sailors or the junior officers and then a mess for the officers, which are sort of captain engineers, um, navigational, engine, uh, navigational officers and the vets and the, the stockmen. And, um, and, yeah, we tended to get a, a higher quality food or a more identifiable food <laughs> than the others. Um, there was one, there was one company, and when I when I went into their mess one day to speak to oh, the um, to their to their their sort of foreman, um, they were eating, and you know they were like, "What are you doing here?" You know, and I'm just like, "I need to speak to so and so," and I'm looking around at what they were eating, and whilst you know part of it may have been what they culturally choose to eat, um, it looked like slop and um, and there was a lot of, you know, a lot of these crews get fed on, you know, only a couple of dollars a day. Like maybe I think it's $4 a day or something like that that they're expected to be fed on, which means – and they're working really hard with physical labour. And so to get their caloric intake, they um, are often substitu- – their, 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 their meals are substituted with a lot of carbs and a lot of oil. So they'll be – ironically, we're carrying a lot of meat and they'll get minimal meat and lots of potato, rice and, you know, maybe curried stuff or, you know, flavoured stuff. But there'll be this, you know, pool of oil sitting over the top of it. Other ships, though, that I've sailed on, I've, I've rolled off, you know, like a grain-fed heifer. Like, you know, the, the food's been fantastic mm. that I've, I've put weight on, but generally it's a, it's a weight loss experience. The chefs don't sometimes make that connection with, oh, gosh, look down there, there's... Well, no one would notice if one of those disappeared. We could have one of those for three days. Oh, the sheep. Oh, yeah, no. They um, they often turn up as barbecues. Um, so we'll have a barbecue on a on a, on a pleasant voyage. E.g., we've got a decent captain that's um, you know understands that morale is important, and um, and they'll have barbecues, and the the cooks will you know set up things like you know chicken kebabs and stuff like that. But there'll often be a sheep. That's um that's been slaughtered and mm. barbecued as well, 
so people help themselves. So you mentioned that convention about um, if your if your cabin door's open, you're happy for a chat. If if the cabin door's closed, please do not disturb. Mm. So there's a bit of uh, inter- social interaction with the crew, uh, and I guess that would vary depending on which ship and which crew and which destination. But I guess I guess by and large, though, in your role, you're probably still largely on your own. Uh, how do you start to deal with that week after week, voyage after voyage? Actually, you're not so much on your own. You're working on your own, as in your role is often a singular role. You're, you're just going and making your own assessments, but you're walking past people all the time. And um, what I really liked about my role was the fact that, you know, I, I tend not to see people or treat people differently depending, you know, regardless of their rank or, or anything. So, you know, the Queen could be on one side of me and the, the local garbo could be on the other side of me. And as far as I'm concerned, you know, there's no necessity to treat one any different to the other and pour one tea quicker than the other, etc. Oh. You know, well, especially in my house, help yourself, because I'm a really bad host, <laughs> um, as you've discovered. But, um, but I really liked my rank because... I got to mix with everybody. I had, um, you know, whereas the navigational officers didn't necessarily have any reason to integrate and mix with the ordinary seamen and the the, the crew deck or the crew the the deck crew. Sorry, um, I had to work with them all day every day to get my job done, and I needed their cooperation. and um, And I really liked you know, talking to them and learning about the geopolitics of where they're from because they're often from really interesting places, you know, as far as I'm concerned, like Bangladesh and Pakistan and um, Palestine and Egypt and um, Philippines and places that, you know, you don't normally spend a lot of time in. And um, But then at the end of the evening, I would retreat back to the officer's mess which is sort of, you know, my designated resting area where I'd be, you know, maybe having a drink with the captain and watching some DVDs with the navigational officers and teasing them going, oh, you know, when you go back on your duty tonight, just just go straight, mate, just go straight. And they would always just look at me going, geez, you're a smart ass. <laughs> because pretty much from Fremantle to, um, you know, the Persian Gulf, there's like one, one turn. Yeah. And you're like, what do you even do up there? Like, seriously, are you awake? You know, and, and, and I'd just tease them and they'd just go, go down and kill something. And I'd just go, oh, shut up. <laughs> and, you know, it was... Um, I found it really social and um, so boredom is never a problem on an unhappy ship it is a problem if there's poor morale because everybody's door will be shut so um, is that when the isolation starts to kick in when you've got people who just aren't really interested in socializing yeah and it's usually everybody is feeling isolated and um, and again I I don't get that so much on or I didn't get that so much on the ships because on deck, I always had to integrate with um, people during the work hours, which was six to six. So I had 12 hours of chatting to people. It's pretty easy on a ship to, to sleep for the other six hours. Um, oh, it's at 12 hours. So, um, so yeah, so you're never totally isolated. Um, sometimes at night you might go down to the mess to, to watch a DVD and there'll be no one else there because, you know, they'll have all, you know, got annoyed about something or just be unhappy with the voyage and... Um, you know, especially some cultures don't mix very well. Mm. So I was there was a couple of voyages I did where I had a Pakistani captain, um, Indian officers, and Bangladeshi crew, and none of them got on with each other. So trying to get them to mix wasn't happening. No, 
And, I can imagine. Yeah. So, in fact, there was probably little mini parties going on all over the place, but just you weren't in, invited. Just in each other's cabins, <laughs> like, you know. Yeah, so, right. um, so as, as a complete outsider, you know, it was inappropriate for any of them to be inviting me into their cabins and, you know, threatening honour and all that kind of rubbish. And um, so that was really interesting. And there was there was one voyage I did where the um, the Pakistani captain. Uh, decided that he was just going to be such a miserable sod that he actually turned the air conditioning off to the Bangladeshi's accommodation area. So they worked all day in the Persian Gulf in the middle of summer and, um, you know, got fed oil and potatoes. Oh, no. And then had their air conditioning turned off. Oh, so that's they, awful. So they were sleeping outside on, on the, the open deck, oh. which, you know, it's still stinking hot. Yeah. And, you know, it's been so humid in some areas I've sailed through that the foghorn's gone off. <laughs> We, we nearly hit an oil rig one day, and I'm just like, what, what, you know? And um, and then I, you know, because I, I was outside on a deck, and I, all of a sudden the ships veered really savagely, so you can you can feel the ship moving, and you sort of look out, going, why have we done that? And I'm like, oh, so we didn't hear that hit that great big oil rig that you can just make out through the the mist, which is humidity. Wow. So I'm curious when you when you talk about uh, just sort of heading on down to the to the mess to to watch a DVD. I mean. When I think about sitting down to watch a movie, I'm thinking about a lounge. It's comfortable. Uh, what does that look like? Are, are the walls all metal or do, do, they, do you have lounges? Do you, are you sitting on rickety chairs? The, How- the walls are normally for mica and um, the floors either lino or on a flash ship, there might be some really dodgy, sticky carpet. Um some of them have got lounges and, you know, nice lighting. You know, there was one ship I sailed on that used to be called the Renoir. So there was like oh, okay. Renoir prints all over the, the walls. And um, she, she's notoriously um, disliked by the animal welfare um, people in the world. But because I cut my teeth on her and sailed on her for probably five years, it's kind of like having your first old crappy car. I really liked it. You know, I've got a, I've got a soft spot for her, um, even though she's not a great animal welfare performer. Um, so, so yeah, they vary. And, and sometimes you go downstairs and it's just like sitting in a, a cafeteria at a university, but that's your mess. You know, you sit and watch your, your DVDs. And, so yeah. it's no, no cruise liner? No cruise liner. And I remember one day we were sailing um, sort of around a cyclone off um, – Socotra near Yemen and um and we've normally got DVDs all over the place and as the ship rolls and carries on you know they slide in and out of the drawers and the drawers slide in and out and you know you got trash sort of lying around and um and we came down and there was you know the ship was really rough and a lot of people turned up to the mess to watch you know TV because we're just you know waiting out through a hurricane as you do and um and there was no DVDs anywhere. We couldn't find them. And we had this this pretty funny captain. I really liked him. He was this Scottish guy. And he's come down and he's gone, oh, good. I was hoping there would be people here. And he goes, I've got the DVDs for the night because every now and then they'd, you know, release fresh DVDs for oh, us. Yeah, it was special. pretty exciting. And, um, and so he offered us Perfect Storm or the Poseidon Adventure. Nice. <laughs> Most appropriate. Thank you very much, sir. So, um, so we probably watch both of those. And um, as you do. Meanwhile, you're sitting there, and there's like you know a formica coffee table in front of you, and there's like a little lip around the tables on, on every table, even in your cabin, um, so that things don't slide off. And um, and you'll be sitting there just watching the TV screen, and you know your peripheral vision will see the guy to your right's coffee just start 
to make its way past you. <laughs> and you just don't even think. You just reach out and, and stop it. You don't, you don't hand it back to him and you just wait for the ship to roll back and the, the coffee will return and you're like, yeah, good. And you just play this game where you sort of just stop extra spillage. But you don't even think about it after a while. And I can look at photographs now and I can just go, oh, yeah, we're in heavy weather then because I'll notice that um, either um, a calendar will be at a, a really weird angle compared or, to yeah. the vertical lines that should be on the ship. Or, or the level in your drink is just not quite right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you never fill anything to the top. And, um, you know, you, you take the animal welfare um, travesty out of out of what I was doing and the shipping part of it I found really quite exciting. I love the engineering and the industrial scale of those vessels and it is an adventure being at sea. And, and I could never think of, you know, I couldn't imagine going on a, a cruise ship because even though it's like, you know, you'd think it's the same stuff. It's industrial, it's big, but it's not really industrial. It's kind of like the Gavinci version of what mm. I was doing for a living. And um, it just wouldn't be the same. It's not hard to see why live export can be so polarising. There's a lot of money at stake and many people going about their jobs as a way to make a living along the way. If you take it all away, then obviously things will need to change with a variety of impacts on different people. But would this ultimately be a change for the better? Given the experiences Lynn has just described, I'd say the animals would have a fairly strong opinion on the matter, if they were indeed able to voice it. In the next episodes, we talk about more factors which, again, we perhaps don't really think about. What does it mean to kill humanely? And why do we use the word humane when referring to animal death? Does live export impact Australian jobs? And are we really that much better at providing a humane death? And what about that invisible workforce that seems to drive these ships? Forty Seven Degrees is independently produced by Colink Media. Interviews, narration, and production by Colin Klupik. Music licensed by Getty Images. To get in touch, send your emails to 47degrees at colinkmedia.com or to post your thoughts and join the conversation, visit facebook.com slash 47degreespodcast. podcast.